This is, as Ross said, the second sermon in a five-part series on giving for gospel growth. Uh, in the first, we saw that uh, money is a part of God's creation. We learned that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and that money in itself is not an evil thing. Indeed, it's been given to us by God to steward it well. So you can have it, spend it, save it, or give it in ways that bring you joy and bring God glory. But um, it would be silly not to recognize the fact that the Bible contains many, many warnings about money, its misuse, and abuse. In fact, Jesus talks more about money and about the things that money can buy. In fact, he talks more about that than he does about hell. That in itself shows you, well, that it's a dangerous thing potentially for us to desire and a dangerous thing potentially to possess. Again, though it's not evil in itself, we know that money is not the root of all evil, as some people suggest. 1 Timothy 6.10 must be one of the most misquoted verses in, of, in the Bible. It's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, including idolatry, uh, which is our subject today. This is the warning that Jesus has for us in Matthew 6.19-24. to 24. He is, to give you a little bit of context, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which is where he sits down to teach his disciples, and in the end, all the people that gather around with him, he's teaching them what it means to follow him. He's saying, this is how you live when you really get the gospel I proclaim. So let's pray, and then we'll read it together. Our Father, we are grateful for your words. Uh, may we be not like those who the psalmist says, take your words and cast them behind them like they're of no value and no worth. But be more like the disciples who said, to whom else shall we go? Your words are the words of life. Uh, bless us with these life-giving words just now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 6, verse 19, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Amen. This is God's word. Well, I wonder if you have ever seen... Uh, or read The Lord of the Rings uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's uh, one of my favorites, really. It's a fantasy story about an unlikely group of characters working together to destroy a ring that holds some uh, strange and malevolent power. If we can have the next slide, please. Frodo is the bearer of the ring, though in the books and in the movies, you'll see that others have it also. 
Now, this ring falls into different hands at different times, but one thing is clear, whether you read the book or watch a movie, the, the, the ring bearer is captivated by it. Um, the ring is precious to whoever has it. In fact, everyone who has it calls it that. They call it precious, my precious. Some of you are willing me to do the golem voice, and I am not. <laughs> I promised myself before I got into the book, I will not do the golem voice. Anyway, it's treasured by them, okay? It is precious. Did somebody just do the precious voice in the middle of the sermon? I'm sure I just, that's terrible. Okay, everyone calls it precious. That's what they call it. It's treasured by them. And actually, when you read the books or watch the movie, you see that people who are captivated by the ring and who have been in possession of it, they completely freak out when they don't have it or when they're threatened at the loss of it. But the ring is not only everyone's precious, the ring is the master of everyone who has it. It exerts this strange control over them. And while a person is in possession of it, really, it possesses them. Now, the ring in Tolkien's uh, story illustrates the effect that money can have on us in real life. Uh, money can easily become everyone's precious, uh, magnetizing those who love it, worrying those who treasure it and have it, uh, devastating those who lose it and corrupting those who keep it. And money can easily become everyone's master. It possesses those who possess it. Now, that cannot be for people who love and follow Jesus. That cannot be for people who really get the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That cannot be for people like us as a church family who are meant to reflect the character of God when we know that the character of God is, well, he is generous beyond compare. So how do we know? How do we know if we are uh, possessed by money? How do we know if it is something that has become too much of a treasure for us, too precious for us to the extent that we love it, value it, and are afraid to give it away. Well, Jesus provides a bit of a test for us in this passage. And really, I don't know if you like tests. Uh, I always like the kind of exams or tests that were multiple choice. You have the chance of actually doing pretty well in it. Well, this is kind of like a multiple test over three points, uh, multiple choice over uh, three points. And really, it's just the choice of one of two things. Where's your treasure, earth or heaven? How's your heart, light or darkness? And, uh, or how's your eye, sorry, in light or darkness? And who's your master, God or money? Those are the three things we're going to look at. So let's look first of all, where is your treasure? Verses 19 to 21. Now treasure is, of course, what Jesus is talking about here. As you see, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is talking about uh, treasure, uh, but he's not really talking about treasure in terms of the, the desire, in the desire sense of the word, but actually what you have and what you do with it. And in this passage, he's talking about money and the things that money can buy. 
Now, Jesus is talking specifically, though, about storing treasures, about putting them somewhere. And it's quite clear from the passage that you can store up your treasure in one of two places, either on earth or in heaven. When he's talking about storing up treasures on earth, he's talking about a lifestyle of accumulation in this world. I don't think we really struggle to understand what that means. I actually think we're quite adept at it. If you're anything like me, you are. We all have in us this, this kind of deep and seemingly insatiable desire to surround ourselves with all the different things that we set our eyes and in our hearts and our wills on. We set our love on these things, surround ourselves with the things that we think will bring us oh, more contentment, greater satisfaction, deeper happiness. Uh, but John Stott calls this the foolish, uh, the foolish fantasy because these things never really satisfy. I mean, have you ever found yourself sitting down and having a look around what you have, maybe in your living room or something, having a deep, ah, I actually think I have got enough. We tend not to think like, like that, do we? We don't think along those lines. I actually have more than I need right now and express a deep contentment. No, I don't think we do that. If you do, praise God for that. That is a sign of great contentment. But maybe money does have a tighter hold on us than we realize and it's a problem because according to Jesus, storing up treasures on earth is a seriously bad investment, um, and mainly because they don't last. They don't have any long-lasting value. They might have some kind of temporal enjoyment in it. It lasts for a moment, but these things are gone in no time. And the way he talks about the different things that threaten our money or the things that money can buy, he talks about destruction and Theft. But when he talks about treasure in heaven, it's quite clear that he's talking about the opposite. He's talking about an accumulation of things in eternity. Now, he's not saying that you can actually take stuff with you. He's not saying that you can transfer stuff there. He's just saying that you can live in this day and age in a way that provides the richness in the life to come. Now, is he talking about that you're going to have some kind of bank account in the new heaven and new earth uh, where you can be particularly wealthy and roll about in cash and all that kind of stuff? I don't think he's saying that at all. That he's talking in this whole sermon about the values of the kingdom. And all the while, it's absolutely saturated with this, this deep-seated recognition that our joy in the new heaven and new earth is in him. It's in being in his presence. It's in actually... Uh, acquiring for ourselves that deep-seated joy of the full realization of the gospel. Sins forgiven, suffering gone, life with Jesus, seeing him face to face. That's the kind of treasure in heaven that he's talking about. Now, he says you can use your money and your stuff today, in this day and age, in a way that makes a difference forever. Isn't that an incredible thought? that we can do things now that matter massively in the future. And since he's talking about the subject of money and possessions, we can see clearly that money and possessions are meant to be used and stewarded in this way. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us. 
So he says, you can give yourselves to just accumulating lots of stuff here on earth if you want. Or you can give yourself to developing the kind of gospel vision that means you can store up things that will last for forever. You can invest in things now. And I wonder if that's the kind of thing that captures our vision when we think about giving for gospel growth. Now, often when it comes to the subject of giving, we start to feel guilty about these things. And, you know, it can be the case that when that, that guilt can become the thing that is presented in order to try and say, look, we need to give more. We're just not giving enough, etc." But we need to go way below that. We need to go behind the desires and to find out specifically, even beyond the desires, to find out exactly what is it that is to be gained? What is God's vision for our stuff? What is God's vision for, as Robert said earlier on, for the great things that he has given us to steward? In what ways can we spend our money and use our things, our times, our, our time, our talents, and, and everything in a way that impacts on eternity, in a way that brings more and more people into eternity? You can invest in the gospel vision of your local church for a start. That's part of what it means to belong to a local church family. You can invest in training leaders. You can invest in church planting. You can show kindness to friends. You can give to the poor. We must do all of these things. But if you place, and if you place greater value on heavenly treasures, like more souls saved and future joy, then it radically alters the actions that you take in this life. It actually becomes the very organizing value of what you do with everything in this life. It determines how much time, energy, money you will spend on certain things. And it helps you keep a rein on excess. Now, this is how people who get the gospel see things, see the things that they have been given by God. They ought to. Money and possessions are to be used to achieve long-term kingdom goals. Brothers and sisters, not short-term selfish pleasures. And the thing that's meant to motivate us in this is not the guilt of not giving. It's the potential of what giving brings for the glory of God. You must understand that. And holding on to money, Jesus says as he compares treasures on earth and treasures in heaven of hoarding with giving away, he says, holding on to money will not satisfy our souls or meet the needs of others. We generally do not meet people with lots of money who say, I really am quite content with this money that I have. It is the nature of our hearts to want more and more and more. There's always somebody that's got something better than us, right? Always somebody that's got the better phone, the bigger house, you know, the nicer sofa, the higher pay packet. You know, we see these desires in us even from children. Now, in his book, The Treasure Principle, uh, Randy Elkhorn, I encourage you to get his book and read it. It's quite short. It's very, very good. He takes, uh, he helps drive this point home by helping us think through what it means to have got to the end of our lives having stored up treasures on earth and stored up treasures in heaven. 
and having a misguided view of these things, he takes us to two graves in Egypt. He takes us to the, first to the grave of King Tutankhamun, the pharaoh. You've heard of him, I'm sure. He amassed obscene amounts of treasure. He was buried with his treasure. Actually, he thought that he could take it with him. Gold chariots, heaps of gold and jewels and everything like that. And then, they were, then he went to the, the grave of another chap called William Borden. You've never heard of him. It was a tiny little gravestone in a quiet little graveyard on the outskirts of Cairo. He was a Yale graduate, but he was heir to great wealth. And in the early 1900s, he came under conviction that spending his life storing up treasures in heaven would be the defining mark of his life. He saw from what he read in the scriptures of all the dangers that money could bring and resolved to keep a cap on what he would live on and to give away the rest. And he gave almost all of it to help people in Egypt hear the gospel in the early 1900s to the point that when he died, he didn't have a penny to his name. He knew he couldn't take it with him, Alcorn said, but he knew he could send it ahead. Now, not in the sense that he was waiting to die and go into eternity and roll around in money again. It's just that he could rejoice in the wealth of gospel salvation that was outworked to the glory of God through his giving on earth. It's wonderful to read about that. Now, what about us? When we are on our deathbeds, who will we resemble most, Tutankhamun or Borden? I've been facing up to this. I think we probably all need to face up to it to some extent that the, the love of money and all that it can buy is harming the spread of the gospel. We talk often about how we need to do more. We need to do more to multiply churches and train up leaders. We need to be better at disciple making. We need to be helping each other know how to share the gospel really effectively so that when we go out there, we know we've got something to say. But we tend not to talk an awful lot about how an increase in our giving might bring about a greater growth. No, it's always kind of assumed that, oh, increasing giving, well, it's all about lining the pockets of those who are in charge and who are leaders in the life of the church. Well, that's not true. There is no plan to increase the salaries of your pastors. There, is, there are great plans to spend this money on spreading the news of God's glorious gospel throughout the whole world. That's the plan. How can we do that? Are there ways that increasing our giving can help? Jesus says in this passage, quite simply, be generous. That's one of the ways that we can invest in heaven, store up our treasures in heaven, be generous. Even if we recognize deficiencies in our desires for gospel growth, even if we see in ourselves a kind of unhealthy desire or an unhealthy greed, the interesting thing that he says in here is that we could start giving knowing that our hearts will follow. Now, I think that is a fascinating thing to read in verse 21. Look with me. See it for yourself. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, that's striking because it looks like Jesus said it the wrong way around. So, shouldn't it say, 
where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. You know, work on the will and the wallet will follow, as some have said. But this is fascinating. Jesus is saying what you do with your money doesn't just indicate where your hearts are. It actually helps to determine where your hearts will go. It's a wonderful thing to see. What a helpful thing for people like us who struggle with generosity. So you'll develop. He's basically saying your heart will follow your treasure. Develop a greater interest in your investment. That makes complete sense, doesn't it? I mean, let's say, for example, you invest in the Ford Motor Company. What will happen if you do that? If you make an early investment in the Ford Motor Company, you'll keep an eye on the share price. You'll probably read quarterly reports. No matter how dull or unintelligible they might be, you'll keep your eyes peeled on what's going on because you have a vested interest. And do you know what else? Next time you need to replace your car, what are you going to buy? You're going to buy a Ford right? You have a vested interest in that. Same goes with the gospel. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you recognize a deficiency in the desire for gospel growth in our church, in our city, in our world, then maybe we need to give and have our interest follow. What a joy, what a prospect, isn't it? Storing up incorruptible treasures of souls saved and good deeds done by investing in the work of the gospel. That's how we store up treasures in heaven. And that's how we'll know that money is not our master, but God is. Because when money is your master, you'll not make a difference in eternity, but when God is, you will. Point two, second question. First point, how is your, uh, where's your treasure? Second point, how are your eyes? Now, this is a strange text at first. I mean, verses 19 to 21 talk about money. Verse 24 talks about money. What's this thing about the eye in the middle? Uh, it is odd to read, uh, especially when you read verse 22, the eye is the lamp of a body. A, a lamp? You know, and that's confusing for us because what we're, we're used to thinking about the eye in terms of sight, and seeing outwards. I know how physically and anatomically it works with light entering the eyes and so on, but I don't think that's necessarily what's going on here. We, we think of the, the eye in terms of sight seeing outward, and we tend to talk about all oh, the things that we fix our eyes on. What do we focus on? But what Jesus goes on to say about the eyes being the lamp of the body and saying, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body, everything about you will be full of light, but if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. I think he's talking about the eye in terms of a window and letting in light, okay? If the window is good, of course, then light shines in. And what happens? You have a well-lit room. You know, you move around with the knowledge of your surroundings that are provided by the light. So light produces knowledge and produces in you, symbolically in the Bible, our righteousness, okay? But if the window is bad, if it's clarity with muck, um, if Paul Rees can sound Welsh when Wales win, I can sound Scottish when Scotland win, that's right. You know, if, if, the, if the window is bad, light won't shine in. If it's clarity and dirty and you're consigned to, you will be consigned to stumbling around in the dark. And one of the undeniable signs of unrighteousness in the scriptures is darkness. God's judgment in the plagues in the Exodus, uh, God's judgment 
on his son at the cross, the darkness that covered the land. Now, Jesus is still talking, as he talks about the eye, about the power of money and materialism to master us. And his point is that money has the ability then to blind us, to prevent us from living as we should in this world. But that's not how it should be for Christians. Because we are those who have been enlightened to the truth. The gospel has brought light and life to us. That's, what sal that's one of the ways that Jesus describes salvation. And these words of Christ themselves bring light and life to us. We move around with a full knowledge of what God has revealed, of what God sees as important. We follow on accordingly as obedient followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in righteousness. But the love of money, seeing it as an overly precious thing to us, being possessed by its power, will plunge us into darkness. And Jesus says, if that's how it is and no light gets in, how great is that darkness inside? How great the darkness of the unrighteousness of that life. So it's a warning. In other words, you have no idea just how dangerously dark the love of money can make your heart. It can darken as you start to dispense with righteousness and prefer unrighteousness. It can darken your sense of right and wrong. It can make you stingy and ungenerous in spirit. You can be like the rich man in the parable that Jesus told, whose lavish lifestyle and love of money stopped him from seeing the beggar Lazarus at his gates. In the story, dogs paid more attention to Lazarus than the rich man. And the man didn't even want much from, Lazarus didn't even want much from the rich man. He just even wanted some of the crumbs from his table that fell on the floor. And in the end, both men died. One went to be with heaven, the poor man. The rich man went to hell and was crying out in the anguish of his darkness. His darkness became a forever darkness. His eyes were clouded to the point of making him stingy, ungenerous, and unkind. What a danger sign. What a warning for us. Jesus says that our eyes should be healthy so that what is within is light. Our eyes should not be unhealthy, clouded with materialistic gain, clouded, clouded with a desire for more and more money. Our eyes should be healthy so that our whole person is full of light and walking in righteousness. So how are your eyes? Do we suffer from the spiritual cataract of materialism? Is our vision clouded over? Do we fail to see ways that we can be generous because money is our master, not God's? It's a striking challenge for us, just for me. The third thing, who are you serving? Verse 24, this is where Jesus just drives home 
the power and the seriousness, the mastery of money. This is, this is how dangerous it becomes. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, here's where we see that money itself can become for us a God replacement. It be, that's what an idol is. An idol is something that substitutes itself for God, or we substitute in place of God. We look to things that are not God, like money, sex, power, all these different things. It can be a ton of different things. And we surrender our hearts to these things to the point that it starts to shape what we long for. It, it conditions what we think about often and, it, and what we feel. And we were created, though, to live under the mastery of one. We are supposed to live un, in submission to the one true God. He is supposed to be our master, living and walking under his loving rule. That's what Adam and Eve knew in the beginning before they sinned. But Jesus is saying that the Lord God demands obedience, faithfulness. But money has this power also. And he says, quite simply in verse 24, just to think about it at a practical level, in a principled way, you cannot have two masters. It just doesn't work. He even uses words in here that relate to slavery. You know, you're, you're un, you belong to someone else. You're obliged to one master. You cannot belong to two, and you cannot be obliged to both. And he says you can't do it in principle. You just can't do it. You'll end up hating one and despising the other and vice versa because there's just no pleasing both. And he says, by the same token, you can't do it with God and money. You can't do it with God and any other idol for that matter. And this is a danger for us. Because when you have money as your master, you cannot truly love God as you ought to. You cannot devote your life to him as he calls us to. You cannot enjoy walking in obedience and seeking to please God when money is such a hold on you, when it has such a grip on your life. Jesus, the one who went to die for our sins, told us in black and white, quite simply, you cannot serve both God and money. In other words, who are you going to serve? Oh, you can serve God with your money and your stuff and your time and a ton of other things. And again, he's not saying, as Paul said in the previous sermon, that it's not that you need to be you know, give away to the point of putting yourself into poverty. No, we've already said that at the start, that you can save and spend and give to the glory of God and for your enjoyment. You have to decide in your heart what it means to give and what you should give out of what God has given you. You know, um, putting yourself into poverty to the extent that you can't support yourself or even can't support your friends or your family, well, there's another part that where the apostle Paul says, well, you're acting like 
someone who's worse than a pagan or a tax collector in that sense. It's your responsibility to do all those things. But money must not be our master. God is our master. There is only one God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we must serve him even with our money. Now this is where it loops back around. And the, 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 the discerning question, the, the question we must ask is, are we storing up treasures on earth or treasures in heaven? Because that discloses who our true God is. Either we're mastered by money and God is there to serve devotion to wealth or God is our master and everything else is there to serve him. You have to choose one. Here's the thing. This is the thing about money, isn't it? This both offer life. Both promise so much. Isn't that what we're sold by our adverts? Both offer life. Both offer security. Both offer you hope. Both actually demand sacrifice. But only one delivers, and it's not money. So how do we break away from this mastery of money is precious? Well, we pay attention to the first two points that Jesus has made. That's a starting point. I'll not go over those. But we need to remember the sin of idolatry is just getting things all in the wrong order. We take the things that God has created, turn it into a God thing. We make it an ultimate thing and we start to worship that rather than use that thing to worship God. We just get it all the wrong way around. So there's a corrective to take place in our thinking and in our theology, but at the same time, we have to develop something called gratitude, something called contentment, and we have to practice something called generosity. Gratitude is where we are filled with thankfulness for all that God has given us. And when we are filled with contentment, we understand what it means to be at peace with what we've got and to not find in ourselves the longing for more just because we think, because there's some kind of lack or lack of satisfaction in our hearts. Thinking that, oh, just that next house, that next car, that next promotion, whatever it is, that next thing, would just that, now that would make me happy. But being grateful for what we have, and even when God does in his kindness add to us more, we realize that God gives to us good things not to raise the standard of our living, as Alcorn says, but the standard of our giving. He wants us to be generous. And that's one of the effects of the gospel going deeper and deeper into our souls. One of the signs that we are truly being enlightened and that we are treasured, that we are storing up treasures in heaven is that our fingers are free and loosen their grasp on our goods and generosity becomes one of the true marks of being a Christian. You know why that is? It's because generosity is a definitive mark of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because of what he's given us, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty, you might become rich. Not rich in terms of treasures on earth, rich in terms of treasures in heaven. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you 
are wealthy, if you think you're wealthy. Because of where we live and the average pay packet that folks get in this nation, it's quite clear that we are in, among the wealthiest 5% in the world. Yet we just feel so dissatisfied. Don't you feel dissatisfied? Satisfaction and contentment is truly found in the God of the gospel, our Lord Jesus Christ, who laid aside the riches of heaven to come into this world, to die on the cross for all of our idolatries, for all the things that we put in stead of God, for all the things we've worshipped and served. He died to take those things away, to offer us forgiveness and the promise of life, meaningful life now and the promise of life like you've never imagined it in the future. And he calls on those who read passages like this and who come to face to face, whether it's with their idolatry or with their selfishness or with their greed, which is covetousness. And he invites us to turn away from all of that and turn to him to find forgiveness in his name. Would you do that? Talk to the person who brought you. There's a prayer team down at the front here afterwards. They'd be happy to chat to you about that. Or I'll be at the door for about 10 minutes straight after the service. I'd be glad to chat to you about these things. He has been so generous to make salvation available to us. He is ready to make you richer than money can buy. Not in terms of cash, but certainly in terms of what you own. And brothers and sisters, what a challenge this is. What a challenge this is to all the things that we call like our money and our possessions are precious. And coming face to face with the realization that the things that we desire lots tend to have mastery over us. Well, what an encouragement this is to dispense with those idols and to be generous in our giving and to store up treasures in heaven where nothing and no one can destroy them or take them away. Wouldn't it be great on that day when we are there and we say, do you know what? I'm so glad I gave what I gave. This brother is here because of what I gave to make the gospel spread and plant a church somewhere or sent that missionary elsewhere or devoted ourselves to building up the center here and sending out more, we will not be full of regret. We'll be full of joy. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Take a moment just in the quietness to offer your own prayers, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of repentance maybe. Ask God to help us to grow in our understanding and in our giving.
Well, let's stand and sing a song of response, which contains a heart.